Alright guys, I'm going to talk about a topic that I have put off for a while and um, I was going to say it's the long-awaited podcast on entrepreneurship, but I guess it's me that's been awaiting it because I didn't tell anybody I was going to talk about it. Anyway, um, the reason it came up was I attended a really good uh, presentation today or talk by um, one of the founders of Yahoo. Uh, He spoke at UF. And he is the first um, salesman that Yahoo ever hired to sell advertising. Um, And uh, it was really cool. He has a new book coming out. I forget the name. He says that Yahoo made um, six of the largest mistakes in business history. And he quantified them. So I think he has like a a good case. Um, And uh, some of the mistakes he talked about were, I think the first one he mentioned was they resisted buying Google. They had an opportunity, like they were at the negotiating table with Google in like 99 or something. It was very, I mean, I think they were still, they weren't even called Google yet. The guys had just come up with an algorithm called PageRank, if you remember, that they came up as their, um, I don't know if it was a master's or PhD thesis project. Um, So, they had the opportunity to buy Google for a million dollars and they turned it down and he gave, I guess, when he did his numbers, the market cap of Google, the value of all Google stock was $750 billion, which sounded high to me, but I guess we're hearing talk about Apple being possibly the first trillion dollar company, so it could be that there is a um, that Google is valued that high. Um, I just wasn't aware. Um, the other mistake he mentioned, and there, there, there's a theme here, but uh, they turned down buying uh, Facebook. Um, Facebook, uh, a lot of people, well, you may or may not know, Mark Zuckerberg was looking to sell either all or a significant portion of the company in 2005, and they were in talks with Google, but he really didn't like the Google founders. Um, I, I don't remember why. I think he was worried they were going to be too involved with the company and change it. And then he apparently was also in talks with Yahoo. And he was uh, in talks with uh, Microsoft, who actually did buy um, 2% of the company for, I don't know, $200 million or $400 million, something back then. But the guy gave the example, the speaker today, you know, mentioned that their market cap is like, Three hundred and fifty million dollars, or two hundred, or billion rather, or two hundred and eighty billion dollars, something like that. So he's like, the combined market cap that Yahoo had the opportunity to buy and didn't was something like one point two trillion dollars. Um, and then uh, I don't know. He had some other examples in there that are escaping me. I I raised my hand and I asked him, "Are you familiar with the book, The Innovator's Dilemma?" And he said no, which actually really surprised me because it kind of tells the story of, of, of what he was saying just to, because this happens all the time that companies fail to see the writing on the wall. And so I said what, what, um, what uh, the innovator's dilemma says is that even when companies see disruption coming, often their culture prevents them from being able to adjust and um or you could you could also say bureaucratic inertia and he said i I was really surprised he said i don't i don't agree with that at all 
because I think had one or two decisions gone differently, Yahoo could have been the owner of Google and Facebook or Yahoo could have been the owner of YouTube or whatever. And it would have been a very different scenario. And then I said, so so why didn't they? And he said, well, because the CEO at the time, Terry Semmel, was he was an accountant by trade and he came from Warner Brothers uh, Film Studios and he tried to lowball uh, Google and Facebook. And he said also the founder of Yahoo, Jerry Yang, was also a, he wasn't a technological visionary. And so I said, um, you know, how did those, how did, well, mostly about Semmel, Terry Semmel. I said, how did, so how did he become CEO? And he said the board picked him. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, I, I respect everything this man said, but I can't believe he, he, he doesn't see that culture is what determined the fate of this company or prevented them from seeing the writing on the wall. And culture is kind of a vague term. Um, it could mean, you know, you could take it to mean uh, just the, the, like the values of an organization. Or you could just view it as bureaucracy. And, and that's really what the writer of The Innovator's Dilemma comes down on. Um, that the, the people in power at that company have a vested interest in preventing the company from changing too much because it might make their contributions less valuable. Another thing, there's a famous saying that I think it probably comes from the 50s. It comes from some famous industrialist or business writer, and they said, never count on a man understanding something that requires him to be out of a job if he understands it. And I'm paraphrasing. I apologize. I don't remember the exact quotation. But you get the idea, and, and I'll, give you, um, I'll give you like a, a practical example. Um, Yahoo back in the day it was a search engine kind of but it was it was more known it's more called a portal and it was more of a case where you tell it a topic you're interested in and it then gives you recommended pages like an editorial and he even mentioned that the company was very dominated by editorial oh that was one of the mistakes that he had listed before i ever asked my question he said um google makes uh 70 billion a quarter from advertising in, in, in search results. And he says, Yahoo, the third biggest mistake Yahoo made was they resisted that because uh, they felt that editorial was the essence of Yahoo. That they felt they almost viewed themselves as journalists and they had a responsibility to their readers and their users to pick the best content, almost as if they were a newspaper um, picking the topics that would be in their, their issue. So he says they he tried to get them to change, and he, the product team, he was on the sales team, he tried to get them to change, and they would not for a long time, and then they did some limited tests, and then the dot-com boom hit. I don't remember how far along they got, but they they missed the boat on, on the advertising, search engine advertising, again, emphasizing culture. So that's a practical example um, of how the, 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 so for instance, all the product guys that were responsible for choosing that content, their contribution is no longer valuable if they become a totally algorithmically generated search results page, or at least it's less valuable. Um, and and they, those guys may have some sincere beliefs about this is what's best for users, and those would have to be systematically debunked or um, debased for that company to 
to have switched to being a pure search engine like Google was. Here's another example. Um, one of the reasons that Google took off, and I, I actually think this is probably the main reason. Um, everybody says that Google was uh, the best search engine because of search results. I, I don't recall having a horrible time finding what I needed on Yahoo. But I do recall that when you used Google, it was way faster. And the reason it was way faster was because Google was a blank page and then a page of results. And it wasn't this big cluttered page right at the front that you got with Yahoo. Um, and I'm, yes, the search results are probably better, but speed was a big part of it. Imagine you are working at Yahoo and you're telling guys, guys, you know how we spent years cultivating the best editorial picks for our portal page and, and getting the best partners and finding the best content for, yeah, we need to get rid of all of that. We need to delete it all. You would be laughed out of the company. There'd be egos involved. There'd be po revenues involved. And that the, the author of the Innovators Dilemma often talks about that revenues. You have to be willing to lose existing revenues. And then you have to have the faith that the revenues that you're going to get are bigger and then you have to have everyone on board for it and sometimes those bonuses don't line up you know if you're the guy who gets a bonus for getting a partnership with Encarta Encyclopedia to have the results on your page you don't want some algorithm being applied to the page that then is going to push Wikipedia up. I'm just making this up because I don't even think Wikipedia is out. But now every your work is undermined and you're not you're not getting you, you know you're not rewarded on the same basis. So so I, I just feel that um, at the high end uh, you know innovation is so difficult because of not not just innovation but the the right innovation at the right time and 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 preventing yourself from being disrupted and we should probably talk about what that term means etc one sec disruption is not it's a broadly applied term but the writer of the book innovators dilemmas where the term disruption was was first popularized for the business world and what it specifically refers to is a much cheaper technology or a technology with a, a product with a cheaply scalable technological core that ra starts in the low end of the mar market and rapidly takes over. So um, it's uh, it's not so like a disruption would be Airbnb's to hotels. It's not a hotel chain that has slightly better hotel rooms. It's something that has a technology core that is very hard for competitors to duplicate or something and and there are there is some subjectiveness and there's debates within the people who study this this term disruption sometimes it just upends the economics uh, so um, example again is uh, Airbnb or Uber which takes uh, existing um, existing uh, cars and drivers uh, and that allows them to have lower up uh, sorry uh, lower a faster response time because they they don't have to worry about staffing each zip code with drivers or they don't need like a taxi driver to be camped out in each area they have built more capacity because they're utilizing already existing people's free time and people's people's vehicles um and and even then it it, it up it uh, the dirty secret of uber is that they subsidize 50 percent of the cost of every ride so between what the drivers paid and then what uber makes um, so like, let's say a ride, the true total cost of your ride is 150 after everyone makes their cut. 
you only pay $1 and Uber just eats the other 50 cents. And the way they're able to do that is through massive investment. I mean, billions of dollars of venture capital and uh, private capital from, from companies. Anyway, and it's very hard to, 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 to compete with that because, you know, where's a local taxi company going to get that kind of investment? They can't take a 50% or, or a 30% loss. Uh, they can't lose 50 cents off of every dollar fifty. Um, so, so that's disruption, and it's incredibly hard. And at the high end, it's almost unheard of. You know, we think we think of people. We have this perception that companies have multiple hit products. You know, in my experience, they don't. You you you're lucky if you get one massive hit. And um, I'll give you an example of that. Um, so we all know that Apple. They were they were a struggling PC maker until they had the iPod. But the iPod was still not a very big product. I mean, it, it, the iPod alone is like a, a, a um, chump change compared to what they make today. And the iPod didn't change the world. It was just a more expensive MP3 player. You could say maybe it changed uh, music downloads, although I, I don't even know that because people still pirated after the iPod came out. So um, you, you maybe could say it changed, it changed music sales. Um, but it didn't, you know, it took years for music sales to recover. So I, I don't really think the iPod's that innovative of a product. There's some things around the design of it that caused old people to, it was friendly to non-technical users. And I think it helped Apple kind of grab this identity. Um, that jog wheel is more friendly to people than having a bunch of buttons. And it, you know, it was curved and it was white, which is more friendly than these black box MP3 players that, that techies were carrying around. But the, anyway, Long story short, the, the, the iPhone was their massive innovative product. The iPad is not that innovative. I have people tell me all the time they don't know why they have their iPad. They don't really use it once big screen smartphones come out. Um, and the Apple Watch. Yes, they sell a lot of them. But if you're an owner of an Apple Watch as I am, you know that it's not really a game changer. Um, it... Uh, it just helps you get notifications off your wrist. People talk about workouts, but that's more that's more entertainment because if you if you talk to nutrition and, and, and fitness researchers, university researchers, they'll tell you that exercise isn't really useful for weight loss. And um, it's good for your brain, but you don't really need a watch to tell you um, that it's if it, it it's a motivational benefit, it probably helps some people get more out a little more out of their workout. But the Anyway, that's 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 probably uh, I don't know about another podcast, but those are my views on that. I don't think you'll find many people calling the Apple Watch a revolutionary product. Nowhere near the same level as the iPhone. And then um, you know Google, Google had their search engine, um, but that's really the only thing they make money off of. So even if and they bought YouTube, the last innovative thing that Google made was Gmail. You know, continue on Google. Um, and I don't even really know how, how innovative Gmail was. I think there were web-based mail clients at the time. I, I think um, Gmail was just, you know, the it loaded fast. It had a decent interface. I, don't, I can't really immediately think of what was really innovative about Gmail. I think it was just free email at a time where people were paying for it. Um, or you had to install a desktop client. But I, I do not think they were the first web-based email. I, I might be wrong on that. I'd have to go look it up. Um, and then Android, that was, I mean, literally, Android was designed for Blackberries until Eric Schmidt saw the, the first iPhone design. So, like, they admit this. Like, they went back to the drawing board to make Android, 
like the iPhone. And I'm not saying that Android doesn't have things that are better than the iPhone on it at all. I'm just saying I don't think it's a, a revolutionary, disruptive, game-changing product. It's more an also-ran. And actually, there's some data. There's people who are... So it's not clear that Google has ever made a cent off of Android. Um, and the reason is they invested billions and they think, I believe they still do pay cell phone makers to ensure that they use Android rather than using something else. Um, so, so anyway, just taking like the top two companies, you think they have tons of hits, but they really don't. I mean, I asked the guy today, I, he, he said, you need a visionary, the Yahoo guy, you need a visionary CEO is what he learned from that experience. You need a technolo- you need a technologist as your CEO. And he says, because we had that accountant guy is why we didn't buy Facebook and and, uh, and Google. And I think there's probably some truth to that. And so I asked him, like, you know, but what do you think about Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple? And Tim Cook is a supply chain guy. I think he might be a mechanical engineer, but he, he, he's famous for making Apple more efficient on their operations. Um, I know a little bit about that. But anyway, he said, um, Tim Cook, you know, Tim Cook's all right. But um, basically, he went into how... Steve Jobs created the iPhone, which in his this guy's opinion is one of the top three most important products of the last 100 years. And I agree. Um, you know, it's somewhere in there. So it's very important. And I guess this guy's answer was because the iPhone was so innovative. And he, he oh, he referred to Apple as a one-trick pony. So um, I don't really think you, you get multiple hits, at least at the very high end. I mean... Look at um, look at Facebook. Facebook has created tons of new apps that you, you don't hear about because they fail. There was one called, I think, Rooms. There was one called Spaces. There's one called Moments. Moments, I think, is still doing all right. But there's all these little apps you don't hear about that Facebook has tried. They, they Facebook has tried to make the next Facebook, and they failed. And that's why they bought Instagram, which was smart. And that's why they bought WhatsApp and tried to buy Snapchat. Um, Snapchat. Snapchats, it just came out. Their goggles failed miserably. Um, um, GoPro. GoPro's tried again and again to come, rekindle the magic they had. They haven't been able to do it. So anyway, I think if you get one hit at the at the very high end, I think you're very lucky. And I'll, I'll give you a statistic to back that up. The average length of time that a company stays in the Fortune 500, which is the um, listing of the the 500 largest uh, companies. Actually, I think it's a S&P 500 I'm talking about. This statistic was about the S&P 500 which is the um, index of the 500 largest companies by um, stock market value or share cap, they call it, um, is, uh, I believe it's uh, six years. So, and that's about the, that's about the duration of one hit product. You know, um, if, if Apple doesn't come up with another one, you know, maybe in six years they won't be on, I don't think this will happen, but it's, you could see them being much smaller than they are or, or not growing anywhere near as much as, as, the person who does come up with like the next winning the first winning AR glasses which is what I think Apple needs to create I think they have a good shot at creating it because I think they they're very good with hardware and they have the experience necessary to come out with fashionable glasses and glasses that people find comfortable all of these things little things anyway um, there was one anecdote from the guy who wrote the innovators dilemma that I want to share that I think is a cool story and an empowering story um so he and he's a Harvard Business School professor named Clayton Christensen. By the way, this book I'm, I keep talking about it is the last book that Steve Jobs was reading before he died. Um, so it's and it, it probably is the most important technology book um, in technology right now. Uh, I I 
I don't think there's a more important book in my opinion. And it's one that's talked about probably the most. Um, so Clayton Christensen, this Harvard MBA professor, wrote this book. I believe he wrote it in the 80s. Uh, it might have... No, I think it might have been the 80s. And it was about... Um, specifically about hard drive manufacturers, that these hard drive manufacturers were unwilling to embrace a new technology because they made so much money from the old ones. And he used that as a, a test case or a case study, and I believe it was for his PhD dissertation. And he talked about how, you know, the, the things that made you good in the past are the things that prevent you from dominating the next uh, cycle. Anyway, the Pentagon called him up, and this was in the 90s, so this was later. The, at the time, the Secretary of Defense called him up, or at least his people didn't, said he would like you to present to him and some of his staff. And so um, he went there and they said, explain to us disruption. And he said, well, um, disruption is, you know, when you have this cheaply scalable core that starts in the low end or the fringe side of the market and quickly takes over the majority of the market share. And um, or at least dictates the terms of competition. That's the term he'll like to use. And at the end of the presentation, they said, uh, or the, it was the Secretary of Defense. Um, it was Clinton's Secretary of Defense. I forget his name. He said, um, Mr. Christensen, you really don't know why we invited you here, do you? Or Professor Christensen. He said, well, I, I guess not. He said, um, let me go over here. And he walked over to the professor's whiteboard and he said, what you call over here as the high end, we call the American military. And what you call over here at, uh, the mainstream status quo or mass market tech, we call that Russian military uh, tech. And so I guess not just Russia, but other countries. So like in Afghanistan, they were using AK-47s. And in Vietnam, and this is a Russian gun. Um, and, and, and so they're the mainstream. And then what you call these out these um upstart these startups that have these cheaply scalable cores these startups we call those terrorism or terrorist cells and the guy says mr christensen what we want to know is are there any cases of the incumbent that high high end incumbent noticing that the disruption is coming or is possible, and um, successfully uh, um, intercepting it or preventing it. And Kristen said, said yes, and I wish I could remember the examples. Um, I think they're in the innovative dilemma, but um, he said yes. There's a few, but in every case, the company created a new division outside of the, uh, it had autonomy from the rest of the company and it was tasked with um, strategizing around this new disruption. And so, and I'm not saying, and I don't think he's saying that, that he was the cause for this, but he said like a year later, he got a call and it was the Secretary of Defense again. He said, Mr. Christensen, we want to invite you to Tampa, Florida. And he said, why? And he said, we want to invite you to SOCOM, Special Operations Command, which is a new fourth branch of the armed services. The SOCOM does not report to the Army, Navy, or Air Force. They are autonomous, separate fourth branch of the armed forces, apparently. And 
we've created them um, for similar goals to what you were telling us in the conference room. So anyway, um, I think that's really cool. Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't remember if SOCOM is still near Tampa, but um, yeah, I had a friend who who um, had family work there and um, I know they do cool stuff and it's the type of stuff that, you know, I'm sure we see in the movies and stuff like that. But anyway, so that apparently, and, and I guess before the, this book, you know, this used to be called Skunk Works and it was a small division of the company that was designed with new research, um, cutting as research that might be the company's next product line. And this is just something even more, I mean, um, this is akin to, well, George Lucas did it. A lot of people don't know George Lucas started Pixar. Um, he realized that computer tech, uh, well, at least people in and people in uh, industrial light and magic, which is Lucas's essential of X division, realized that computer graphics were the next thing. At the time, Lucas was making all sorts of money off practical effects using models and things. But right around the time of Return of Jedi, I believe he created um, Pixar. Uh, and he wanted it for something. It was for special um, editing techniques, I believe. But um, it ended up becoming uh, Pixar, and they sold it to Apple. So, guys, I guess this wasn't really my entrepreneurship podcast. Maybe there's some things here that are applicable. Um, oh, I know what I want to say regarding entrepreneurship. Maybe one little thing, and I'll save some for later. Um, I think that if Yahoo had bought Google, it would have failed. Or, or um, it, it, Google would not have become Google. Um, they would have changed it into something else. Uh, they would have cluttered up the homepage and it becomes slow and no one wants to use it. Or I think if Yahoo had bought Facebook, um, it would have failed or it wouldn't have caught on the way it did. Uh, Yahoo would have clogged it with ads or it would have been clogged to links to Yahoo Mail and Yahoo Finance and Yahoo Video um, and it wouldn't have been the same. Or maybe it would have just been, and these are, at least you could call these cultural factors, you could call these um, bureaucratic uh, inertia, like incentives being set up wrong, incentives to market the old product instead of the new one, like we've talked about. Or you could just say different schools of thought on design and values about design and technology. Um, but another way to look at it is, you know, maybe if Google had been owned and just called Yahoo 2.0 or something, it never would have caught on because there's no cool factor to it. Or um, if they, if Yahoo had bought Facebook and opened it to everybody, there's no cool factor to it anymore because it's just that Yahoo Mail add-on. Um, because back in the day, Facebook was considered cool. So you get my meaning, and I think that that might be a reason why companies have a hard time to, uh, stopping disruption. Um, something psychological around branding. You know, we think of um, Facebook tried to buy Snapchat. Um, Maybe if Snapchat changed their name to Facebook or, well, Mark Zuckerberg's pretty smart about this stuff, but it's possible for companies to, to, to buy up their competitors or maybe if they even had a similar idea to their competitor and it just doesn't work because the consumer doesn't see that company. I mean, like for instance, what if Microsoft had designed the iPhone? Microsoft kind of designed the first tablets, but maybe even if they had been just like the iPad, maybe consumers still wouldn't have wanted them because they would have seen it as being, oh, it's a new Microsoft gadget. It's for using Windows. It's for using Office. That's not what I'm about. I don't want that. It wouldn't have been new, truly new in consumers' eyes. So I think there's something around branding there that I'm noticing that prevents companies from transitioning. You know, I'm predicting right now that I don't think 
Facebook will. I think it's possible Facebook doesn't make the transition to whatever social network we use in VR. I think it's possible. I don't think it's certain. I think Facebook will be very useful in AR because I think it'll overlay things like people's name and occupation over their their physical presence, like your vision, like in your eyesight. Um, and I think that'll be useful. But anyway, I think. I think there's a future where, you know, Facebook's not as popular. I don't know when it is. It could be here for 50 years. I think there's a future where Apple's not as popular. I think, you know, what if um, Google could be replaced? And all of these companies know this, but maybe there's some cool upstart that knows they can do it on their own, like Snapchat, knows they don't need Google, knows that they're hipper without being bought by Facebook. And there's nothing at that point that those companies can do about that. Um, so anyway, other than make their, their bid anyway, um, I'd love to hear a theory about that, about something about mindshare culture or, um, pop culture, like, um, perception of teens, maybe, um, when people see something as young and hip, something that kind of crystallizes what I've been thinking about on that. Anyway, I do have some more to say on like what you should do as an individual if you want to start a company that leverages these factors, but I think I'll leave that for, for another podcast. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening, and um, have a great day. Bye. All right. Actually, I do have one more heretical thought before I go, and that is this. Maybe companies shouldn't try to fight disruption, and uh, this is why. Um, I guess I have a few chief examples. Um, you know, you have the example of this guy talking about Yahoo, and he gave he 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 mentioned that they went as high as like a hundred seventy billion dollar market cap, and they ended up selling for like a three point five billion dollar market cap or something, um, and uh, they which was less than what they paid Mark Cuban for Broadcast dot com, which they then ruined. And the point is, you know, they spent ten years or fifteen years and billions of dollars trying to fight being disrupted and if this guy's right Clayton Christensen and if my statistics are right you're rarely ever going to win against disruption be it because of how consumers see you um, they see you as one thing and the new cool thing is something else or how your board of directors wants you to be or how managers in the company see the company um, it's very difficult and you're wasting billions that could then be given to shareholders I'll give you another example easy one. Microsoft spent, was it 10 billion or something buying Nokia? It was some high price. And we find out that that ended up being a complete waste of money. We found out, and they weren't, it wasn't just Nokia. They spent billions trying to develop Windows for mobile for like 20 years. They had a Windows phone like in 1999 or 15 years rather, sorry. And they finally closed shop like in the last year. Um, so that was billions out the drain that could have been given to investors. And I'll give you one that this is really her- heretical. And I, I think I have some ba- – I don't know that I'm right. But I think I want to suggest something. I think Google I, – and, and I think Android might be a waste of money. I mean before we even get – we well – the obvious choice is, look, Google makes all these products. They tried to make a Facebook clone with Google+. Plus. They um, had 400 products at one point that they had to slowly close. They've opened up their books now when they became Alphabet, and you find out that most of these companies don't make money, and some of their products aren't so great. Um, and maybe they'll never make money. Products get canceled, like their weather balloons were 
semi-canceled. We're not sure yet. Google Fiber, you know, first they're not opening any more cities. Now they are. The numbers don't look good. I think a former CEO of the project says that it never makes money or something like that. Um, so so they're wasting money on, on projects like that. Um, Gmail barely makes money. YouTube doesn't make a lot of money. And by a lot, you know, it probably makes billions, but it's like five percent ten percent of their income or something but android i think maybe even android was a waste of money and here's why um they made android or the common wisdom why they made android was to ensure that nobody replaced them on mobile phones as the top search engine but what is the top search engine on apple iphones google is the default and apple allows google to pay them for that but let's say that google wasn't the default you know what is the default Internet, what is the default browser on Windows machines to this day and for, for a decade or more? It's, uh, or decades. It's Internet Explorer. What's the first thing you do when you get a new Windows computer? You install Chrome. People use Chrome on their iPhone even though it consumes more battery than Safari and it's slower usually because Apple doesn't allow them low-level access to APIs that save power and allow fast JavaScript performance. You can Google this. On, on an iPhone, you should be using Safari. Um, I don't even think you have extensions. So there's really no reason other than, what, bookmarks that you never use. Um, but anyway, and it's actually true for MacBooks, too, that Chrome on MacBooks takes more battery. But people, not only do they go to the trouble to install Chrome, even though it's not the default, they make sure that their search engine is, is usually, is usually uh, Google. And Apple knows that they don't they don't need to be messing with that. Apple could have started their own search engine. Apple is probably speaks well of them that they know that they shouldn't have made it. So uh, Google spent all this money, we're talking billions, tens of billions of dollars probably on Android to achieve nothing essentially that I can tell. Now you could argue it sets them up for the future in AR or something, but who knows who's going to dominate in that? I've, as an investor, I would have rather they pocket the 70 billion in search engine revenue a quarter and give that to me in the form of a dividend. So that's my heretical belief on why maybe companies shouldn't even bother. They should do their core competency, what they're good at. That's what I think people should do that I'll talk about in another podcast. And I think they should not waste money on managers' egos of wanting to always be the top tech billionaire. All right, bye guys.